0: This is Design Matters with Debbie Millman from Designobserver.com. This year is the 10th anniversary of the podcast. Ten years of designers and other creative types talking about what they do, how they got to be, who they are, and what they're thinking about. On this program, Debbie Millman talks with Audrey Arbini about audio branding.
1: Think of it like a box of Crayola crayons. That's what we're putting together for this brand. This is the landscape. These are the colors that we're going to paint with.
0: This interview was recorded in front of a live audience at a symposium put together by a design observer called What Design Sounds Like. It took place on February 21st, 2015 at the SVA Theater in New York City. Here's Debbie Melman.
2: We live in a visual culture, and what you look like is often more important than what you sound like. This is not only for people, but also for companies, which spend vast sums on the visual identities of their brands. The way a brand or a product sounds is often an afterthought, and according to Audrey Arbini, a missed opportunity. Audrey and her team of composers have been at the forefront of sonic branding and interactive audio. Their clients have included Xbox 360, Virgin Mobile, and NBC, for whom she designed the Emmy award-winning soundscapes to the Beijing and London Olympics. She's here to tell us about why sound matters, not only for brands and products, but for all kinds of experiences. Audrey Arbini, welcome to Design Matters. Thank you, Debbie. So, Audrey, I understand you began your formal piano training at the age of four. Did you want to be a concert pianist? No, I think it was
1: more to control my behavior. (laughs) Um, My sister was taking piano lessons and she was a few years older than me. And I was kind of like a hyper kid. You know, I had to be doing stuff all the time. My mother said, like, she'd cry when I finally went to school in the morning because I was a million questions and all wound up. So she, cra- so she cried she cried from relief? Yeah. So <laughs> she started me on the piano, and it would get me sitting there, but I actually was pretty good at it. And my mother was a musician. So, yeah, you know, we were kind of living her dream by continuing with what she had envisioned she would have as a child. So it wasn't hard for me because I was good at it. And I liked practicing. I wasn't the kind of kid that you had to make practice. I was the kind of kid that you put a mute on the piano because I was playing so much. Uh, So we got that added on. And yeah, so I started at about four on piano. Then at eight, I started taking the flute. So I added my second instrument then. And then later on, when I was singing in bands and losing my voice, I, I started taking voice lessons.
2: You're a native New Yorker and grew up on Staten Island, like me. I think
1: they could hear this in my voice, yeah.
2: (laughs) So what are the odds that you have two blonde ladies sitting on the stage that are both from Staten Island, right? (laughs) So in any case, um, you've said when you were in school, you studied everything. So what does that mean, you studied everything?
1: I was one of these kids. First of all, for me, school was really easy. I was a good learner and some you know, some people aren't in school is a a struggle. I was the kid that cried when they had to stay home sick. I was the kid that always raised the hand with the answer. So you were the teacher's pet? Yeah. Not really. I was a little annoying because I found my old report cards and they said I talked too much in class, but I like to learn everything. I like to write and I like to ask questions and I'd like to study different things. And if there was a word I didn't know, I would look it up, and my parents would just want to tell me. I'm like, no, I want to look it up. So I had this thing where I was just always trying to learn, which is kind of a pattern in my life. I have studied a lot of different things besides music and sound, and somehow they all kind of rolled together into my company, audio brain. You mentioned your report
2: cards, and um, I I understand that in these old report cards from those years in school, (sighs) one of your teachers stated they wouldn't be at all surprised if you had a career in music. Was that all you ever wanted? I knew that I would work with music. I always knew that.
1: The career changed over the years. First, I thought I would be a music teacher. Then I thought I'd be a music therapist. Then I thought I'd be a psychologist specializing in music therapy. Then I thought I'd be a rock star. Then but you are. <laughs> and then I realized, uh, then I wanted to be a producer. And I'm kind of a bit of all of those things at the company that I have now. Because we do sonic branding, so there's a lot of psychology. There's a lot of science behind what we do. We write music, we produce music, we edit, we install, we do interactive. So I kind of, you know, did a mashup of all my interests and that's what Audio
2: Brain is. You mentioned that you're also, um, is it a flutist or a flutist? I say flutist because flutist sounds flat to me. So (laughs) I always was a flutist. So you studied voice at Carnegie Hall. Yes, I did. Under the late Silas Engram. Yep. For many years. Now, we, at that time, he was primarily teaching opera. Classical. Classical opera. But when I asked you about whether or not you wanted to be an opera singer prior to our interview this morning, you actually said you studied rock with him. No, I was a rock singer because I had a rock band. So, like what kind of like rock? Like a hair like, band. Like like Pat Benatar or like, Joan Jett
1: or... Like, well, there was the, the cover band and then there was the original band. So, they were a little bit different. But hard rock...
2: You know, cover
1: Band was like Iron Maiden, ACDC, Judas Priest, Def Leppard. And then the original music was a little little weird because some of it was really heavy and then some of it was more uh, pop-oriented. So it's kind of like that was the beginning of the end because that's where we weren't seeing eye-to-eye as a band.
2: So you also talked about how much your teachers – were influential in who you are today. You talked very, very um, seriously and poignantly in our uh, pre-interview about your elementary school teachers.
1: Yeah, living in New York City at the time that I grew up, which I don't think is the case now, at the third grade, you were entered into the music program and you got to pick an instrument and you were given the instrument and you got music lessons for free. And I went to all public schools up through high school. Every kid got this opportunity, and I had teachers that were just so unbelievably passionate about what they did, not just my music teachers, but even some of my other teachers. They loved what they did. I, I can't think of one that wasn't, like, meant to be a teacher, and I loved learning from them, Whether and I remember every single one of them and what they taught me. And, you know, my elementary school music teacher was so, so great. And then my junior high school music teacher, Mr. Moran. And then when I got to New York High School and I got Mr. Moriali and Mr. DeBetta. And Mr. Morreale, you'll see him, he was playing in uh, the movie The Godfather because that's what a cool guy he was. And they just made me love music so much because their passion, when you're working with somebody that's really passionate about what they're doing and that's what you want to do – it can't help but rub off on you and they also sh- helped shape me my my character and like who I was as a person I got more disciplined but I also got a lot of freedom and during one of my projects I kind of had like you know when they say you have like this near-death experience so your life flashes before you I had one but it was a good one and all of those teachers flashed before me one after another and I got to tell one of them I said you know uh I was doing this project, and you flashed in front of my face while I was doing this. And uh, he felt
2: really good about that. You studied at NYU. Mm-hmm. Um, what, what did you actually study? Accounting. <laughs> so I know that your, your parents were very concerned that you had something concerned. to fall back on because they didn't want you to have a career in music.
1: No. My mother really wanted me to have a career in music. My mother was a singer and she played piano, and she loved music. She came from a poor background. She lived on the Lower East Side. The woman downstairs taught her piano, and she would practice on a cardboard piano because she didn't have one. My father, the mechanical engineer designing heating and ventilating systems, was more the science side. My mother really wanted me to have a career in music. My mother would make my rock star costumes. They would come to every show. She was happy to go. And my father would just go, um, but he wasn't he he still encouraged us we They never had a basement, we always had a band in the basement, but they wanted us to have things to fall back on because there are very few people who make it with careers in music. so for me, it was like, okay, I'm, I ace math all the time. Math is really easy for me i 'll study accounting, so i don't have to study so That's why my accounting background came in really handy, and it comes in handy now, especially having the kinds of budgets and the projects we do at my company.
2: After NYU, you went directly from NYU to a company called Elias Arts, which is a sound production company. Mm -hmm. First of all, how did you get the job if you were studying accounting at a sound production company? Okay.
1: This is really kind of funny, because I was studying accounting so I could play till four in the morning with my band. That was the deal. And I was studying something. And... I was working at a law firm, doing a little accounting, make pocket money because bands didn't get paid that much. And ironically, a friend of mine was waiting to play guitar on a session at Elias. They did music production and he was sitting in the waiting area and there were all these girls there. He said they were all female and they, he was, of course, chatting them up and they were interviewing for a position in the accounting department. So he knew that I was trying hard. At that point, I was done with, kind of done with the band stuff. I didn't want to be in a band. I liked being in the studio. I liked taking nothing and making it something. I didn't like playing in these you know, East Village drunken bars till four in the morning and smelling like cigarettes for three days. Why not? I just, well, because I, I had <laughs> outgrown it at that point. I needed like, to make like a career part of it. And I loved production. I liked when my band would go in and I could produce a song – but I couldn't get a job at a record company because they said I had no music industry background. So they said, just go anywhere. Go anywhere for a little while and get it on your resume. So this guy I know was auditioning, not auditioning. He was signed to a session, called me up and said, there's a whole bunch of these people here. They're like interviewing for some position in this accounting department. And Jonathan Elias, is the, he had done a soundtrack that I liked. He goes, it's his company. So I quick called them up, and I went, I interviewed, I got the job. Went in the accounting department, but I had no intention of staying there. That was just to get my feet in the door. So how did you make the transition to sound production there? It was really quick, <laughs> to tell you the truth. I went from, it was a really little company. Well, little, it was big for the, that industry, 20, 25 people, but small compared to if I went to a Warner Brothers. So it was the kind of company that they could go, okay, and you. How about you? You want to do this today? So I let it be known pretty early on that I had a lot of musical interest. When I had the opportunities to show that, like uh, voice casting a project for Jonathan, I would volunteer to do that, even though I was in accounting. Then I became their controller. Then I became their studio director. Then I became their senior producer. So, and I built the LA studios when Jonathan went out there. So I just made myself available and made people aware of what I could do and took the opportunities because it was a smaller type company. um, I got a lot of opportunities that I wouldn't have gotten had I gone on to a Warner Brothers or a bigger organization.
2: Is being a sound designer similar to being a composer or a songwriter? Are there different skills that are required? There's, There's different skills. I consider myself a
1: songwriter, primarily a songwriter. I like things with melody. I like things with lyrics. I like hooks. Composers compose in two different ways. They could do sound design, which is lots of the ambience and special effects that you hear. And there's two different kinds. One is Foley when you hear real sounds like real leaves and footsteps. That's Foley. And then there's architect sound design. And then there's composition, which you're going to hear some of my guys' work, which could be orchestral or jazz. So that's really kind of the difference. And,
2: Lots of projects will blend both. In 2003, a man named Daniel Jackson said, one of the greatest and most challenging aspects of sonic branding is the enormous subjectivity that surrounds the issue of music and brands. Would you agree with that? I do agree with that. And that's, early on was, was a big
1: struggle because you're dealing with something that we all have our own personal tastes. We all have preconceived notions of what we like, what we don't like. I remember going up to IMAX and had this whole presentation freezing up in Montreal and we sat down and the guy said, oh, and by the way, I hate saxophones. (laughs) Well, three of our demos had saxophones in them. So you have to get beyond that and you have to find a way to put in, and I've built a lot of these tools because I had to. To put together a structure a methodology that keeps everybody 's eye on the ball that these are the brand attributes we 're talking we 're not talking about rock we 're not talking about pop we 're talking about does it convey uh, innovation and dependability does it convey a living entertainment system if it 's a small product sound do we have iconography that keeps their eyes on it anything we could do to take the subjectivity out of it, we do. We've created an evaluator now for our clients. Is it sustainable? Is it extendable? Does it meet the brand attributes? It Will it have ear fatigue? Will, so What's the ear fatigue? Ear fatigue is when you, you, you have certain sounds that you want a sound to be sustainable. You can have something that you can hear it once or twice, and it's cool. If you're, It's going to go in a product, and you're going to hear it a thousand times. It can grate on you after a while. It could be a certain frequency or the sharpness of it. So it's sort of
2: like let it go. <sighs> or any, any of Aww. the music from Frozen, which I actually happen to like. <laughs> but, but I know a lot of people have ear fatigue. My nephew, yeah. seven, yeah, yeah, has yeah. ear fatigue from his sister's constant playing.
1: Yeah. So we have a lot of criteria. And the more tools we put in place to keep it objective... We need those because there's still going to be a certain portion because of where music is housed in your brain and how we emotionally respond to what we hear that we're not going to get around. So where is music housed in the brain? The music is housed very, very deeply in the older part of your brain. And I won't get too heady on the science part, but that's kind of my passion point. And that's what kind of drives everything that we do, even though we're a business, even though we, we do... Music and sound as a company, the the passion point of it for me is the research and the science and what I know that it can do in health and healing and wellness in changing people's uh, perspective in shaping their experience and because it's housed so deeply in your brain, it becomes a perfect response tool for recall. That's why sometimes people are senile, they're old, they can't they don't know who you are, but they'll tell you down to what they were wearing of something from forty years ago. You can remember a song that you haven't heard since you were five years old, and you'll remember every single word to it. It's it's very powerful. And when you get into the biomusicology side of those things, the psychoacoustics, it's another reason why it's such a powerful design tool. It can change the way something looks. Even if somebody doesn't reference the sound, they will say the colors got more vivid. How, How does that happen? Because it's aligning properly with the experience. You see, the way our senses are combined, when you have a visual and you have sound that's appropriate to that visual experience, it's not like one plus one equals two. It's like one plus one equals 8 they There'll be eight times more likely to remember a brand if there is a sound component attached to it
2: that is aligned properly with the brand. So I read that brands that deliver sonically often reach a place in the human mind that visual branding just can't. Why does that happen? How does that happen? Because it's housed deeper in your brain. The way so it's more in the reptilian our, our, part of the brain? Yes,
1: it's in the reptilian part of your brain and it goes so much deeper that that's why it's so powerful because visual will be on
2: a different level of your brain than where sound goes. And is that why it becomes such an important or such a a significant memory tool, music? Absolutely. Because it brings you back to things so vividly. How does that happen? It happens because it's tied to
1: where the the memory portion of your brain is very close to where the sound is entering into your brain. It's very deep. So they kind of link together... And sound can, you can hear something and it can kind of take you to some place and it will take you to the whole experience. Like, it's not just like you remember the song, but you remember the song and who you were with. And it was crazy. I did this one thing one time. Uh, I had a very hostile audience, um, a very big corporate brand that didn't want to do sonic branding because it meant more work for them. That's all that they saw it as. So I set up the icebreaker. And I had me and a couple other people to bring in a song. And this song is something that represents you or something in your life. So I knew we'd get three responses because there was me, the corporate identity head, and the second corporate identity head. So I knew I had at least three. And what wound up happening was one by one, these people started coming up. And this one was playing the song about when our family was in a car accident her child was was in a coma and this was the kid, the song she would play to the child when the child went to sleep at night. And she did this and the child eventually is, they said, wouldn't live is now practically perfect. And then the next guy got up and spoke about losing his lost love for 40 years and somehow meeting her in this foreign country. And this was the song that that was their song when they were teenagers. And now he was like 60, but they were just getting married. And like, I had to, I had to cut them off. (laughs) And in that moment, I I didn't have to convince them anymore that this was far more powerful than, hey, we're going to do great unified communications for your giant corporate brand.
2: So let's talk about AudioBrain. You started AudioBrain in 2003. Is that correct? Yes. And very shortly thereafter, you get your first big job. And it's not just a big corporate identity Mm -hmm. job. It's a big cultural job. You get the job to create the sonic branding for Xbox 360. First of all, how do you get a project like that? Okay. They just call like, hey, Audrey, you want to do this? Well, I want to just kick
1: back one little step. Sure. Just to get into the starting of AudioBrain. I felt that I had my own vision- for doing what I envisioned Sonic Branding to be, the, the right kind of tools, what I felt would be the best client experience. I was ready. But that, that ready took me four years from when my head said I was ready. I had a good job. That's pretty
2: quick, actually, in, in terms I, of how I, quickly i I'm I, able I to started change. stepping out the door, and
1: I, <laughs> and I started stepping out the door, and then September 11th happened, and everybody told me, don't do it, don't start it, except my mother. And she said do it. And she said, so what do you have to lose? So you lose lose your apartment, you rent it out, you come move back with us. That was a great thought. But no, I did love my parents. And, and so what's your risk? So you get another job. And what I did was, and the final thing that made me do it was that I didn't want to ever have to wonder later on in life, because I was Doing, you know, I was the senior producer. I was handling these projects from top to bottom, and I'm always grateful for that opportunity I had where I worked. But I had my own vision and I had my own beliefs, and certain things were super important to me. And I had a culture I wanted to create. And so it was when I finally sat down and made my list of reasons why and reasons why not, they were very lopsided. But the one was that I just never wanted to say, I should have tried this. I would rather try it and fail than have to sit there and work for somebody else and say, you know, I really should have taken that chance.
2: So when you say lopsided, there were more reasons not to do it than do it or vice versa? Uh, There were more reasons. There were more reasons to do it. Okay, good. There were a lot
1: more reasons to do it. A lot more personal reasons to do it. A lot of things that I wanted to accomplish a lot of things that I felt that I had my own vision for. And I felt that the only way to get there was to do it myself. So, anyway, so I start Audio Brain with um, my colleague, Michael Sweet, who some of you might know, is an amazing interactive composer, sound designer. Uh, and it was basically, you know, we were going to co op together. Well, I'm starting a company. He's like, well, I'm out on my own. We had worked together previously. So, I'll. Put my studio in where your space is, and we put it together as one company in a matter of about two months. The bookkeeping got too crazy two rent checks, two Fedex checks, to this so we put it together and we were a very, very, very good combination because he was so unbelievably far ahead of the curve on technology and he does now head um, the interactive audio up at Berkeley College of Music, but still works on a lot of my interactive projects so A design friend of ours at JDK, Michael Jagger, Jagger. he recommended us to the Xbox team because he said the Xbox team just didn't want anybody. They wanted somebody that was going to be completely dedicated to them. And he said, I know the right team with the right passion and the right intelligence and the right technology understanding. I think you really should meet with them. So they flew to New York and uh, presented things that we weren't allowed to keep. And um, from there, they gave us the project.
2: So you say that every brand has a voice, a strategic and purposeful design of an audio identity. How do you find that? How do you reveal that? Well, the best way to think about it is to
1: think of a brand as a person. Okay, So I'm a person, you're a person. You and I might be too similar, so I can't use us as an example. But I'm a very dependable person. So my dependability is very strong, very straightforward. I'm very punctual. I'm I'm outspoken if I don't understand something, very direct. I have a composer who's very dependable, and he's very quiet, and he's very seamless. And he's um, very consistent and very smooth even under the craziest of circumstances, his dependable would sound different than mine. So when we look at a brand, we look at the brand attributes, and then we look at which ones are personality attributes. So if you're a bank and you say, well, you know, we're reliable, that's table stakes. That's that pyramid I showed you before. We don't care about that. You better be reliable if you're a bank. We're trying to find what is that differentiating characteristic? What is that one thing that makes you uniquely you? And you're going to find that it's not one thing. And I do this with my students and I ask them to brand themselves. And I tell them, this is a piece of music. Every time people think of you, they hear this. And every time, you know, the phone rings, they hear this. They won't come in with one piece because they'll say, well, mine is kind of like, I have this part of my personality, but I also have this part of my personality And I'm also, there's a little bit of this in me. And we all have, I, this is just my opinion, between about three to five real core characteristics. And for a brand, we find what those are and we blend them together. So here in the Xbox... you heard that Xbox breath at the end was part of the human energy. It was also came from the designers when they said, look, it looks like the product is like exhaling. Cause we saw it when there were many different ones as prototypes and that always kind of stuck. And then they talked about this high architecture meets organic and all of those are represented in that sound. Now does my 12 year old nephew know that it's a living entertainment system powered by human energy and we're shifting the demographic with the strategy team Branding team from hardcore gamer boy to a broader demographic, he could care less about that. When he came in and he said, odd, I saw Transformers, and it turned into the Xbox and a major sound, and he made the sound. That's it. So we don't have to sit and hammer home. This represents this, and this represents that. My composers have to write back when we present to our clients how we're articulating and blending and melding their uniqueness But if the audience doesn't even notice it, but it just makes the experience better, that's fine with us.
2: I have a number of really good questions from my students who have seen you already. (laughs) um, And based on the lecture you already had given them, they had a couple of follow-up questions. Okay. So so one of the questions that I really liked was actually quite a simple one, which is how do you approach a project? How do you get started?
1: First of all, it's always great when we have feel and excitement with the client that's called us when we begin working with them. We get started by gathering every single piece of information about that brand that we could possibly gather. Historically, where they're going strategically, what their visual design looks like. Is there anything new coming up? Are there new product launches? Are they repositioning? Are they new? What issues do they have? We talk to the different people inside the organization about their role and what they feel this brand is about. And we do an intense competitive analysis. And it's not just within their brand. Sometimes we're gonna look at Mindshare. So it's somebody in in an entirely different industry, but has the audience that our brand wants. And we'll look at what they're doing well and we'll present that. So there's a tremendous upfront research component that we do to get started. And that starts to help us shape the landscape, always be in the compass, Never being the, you know, the be all to end all. We need our clients engaged. We need to give them the tools so they can tell us what feels right
2: for their brand. Is there a, a specific kind of framework that you use for each project or is each project done sort of as you see it most appropriate?
1: No, there's a a framework, and I think we're going to see it in the – are we going to do the Unify yeah, or do you Unify. want to skip over? Well, no, no, no. Because Unify to skip has it. the whole we'll process why don't we, right, why don't we in, that?
2: right in that Okay, uh, excellent. So we're going to talk about another case study, which is when Siemens uh, Enterprises relaunched their company and became Unify.
1: Okay. So Unify is a separate company. It used to be Siemens Enterprises. Now it's going to be a standalone company, and they wanted to launch in a in a very big way. And it's so funny it's that six degrees of separation, but one of my Microsoft clients then had left there and was heading up. This.
2: So they take us with them. We're like yeah, the traveling. I agree. Was of telling me she, she has one hundred percent retention with her clients, which I think is pretty amazing.
1: So anyway, so they wanted right from the get go. This is where the world has changed. They wanted everything. They wanted to launch in a big way. They had Siemens Enterprises, which had a great legacy. So we wanted to keep that, that legacy. That was a good brand. We don't want to throw away that equity. So, but we want it to be fresh. And what does the new brand represent? The new brand is a fresh identity with new offerings, different higher-ended technology offerings. So, how do you balance that? And how do you launch it in a unified way? No pun intended that the name is unified. We looked at the visual identity, it reminded us of a piano. And this is our process. This is what I was talking to. All our projects follow this process. They will all have phases one to three. There's a discovery phase and a strategy phase where we'll look at everything. We will do concepting. We will do metaphors. We do, uh, you know, a lot of exercises and tools with our clients. And all will go to the creative. Some then go to implementation and then some go to refreshment. This is my composers telling you how they articulated the different components for this brand. This is how they said connected. They have to write this back all the time. It's not arbitrary. So we have a counter melody that represents a harmonic aspect to bring this brand narrative to life. This is sound design to a degree, and this is our confidence, our steadiness underneath what we do. Think of it like a box of Crayola crayons. That's what we're putting together for this brand. It's not an Intel inside singular logo. This is the landscape. These are the colors that we're going to paint with. And now here are a couple of examples. That's the sound logo. Now, this is the brand launch. This is a corporate identity piece. It's an uh, it's launched the brand.
0: What would you call a company that empowers today's anywhere workers with the tools to be more productive from wherever they happen to be? A company that connects this to this to this to this from this app to the
1: next up, this This is my favorite of the whole thing. And we worked with McMillan on this and Gordon McMillan and his team. We love working with them. Uh, This this is not the next one is my favorite, but this is a video bookend.
0: Hello, I'd like to talk a bit. Isn't that a nice way to introduce a video presentation we offer our customers?
1: And then this is their logo bumper. I think we can probably stop this one after this, after this one. Because there's a video after that. But I want to get to the other stuff.
2: And you see how it's just inverted the same structure. So, what makes certain industries, whether it be entertainment or tech or media, more responsive than others to audio branding? Well, first of all, anybody who's in
1: technology, so when you have your, your companies, like your Microsofts, your Googles, your anybody who has doing devices that are sound centric, um, quite obviously have an inherent need for that sound to be really good. So they're a little bit more receptive to a degree, but at the same time, they'll think that they can hire a sound designer and put them on staff and get the this level of, of detail. And it's not quite the case. Sports in general, they're storytellers. So sports in general are very receptive to uh, using sound for narratives. Television is, film is. But I find some of our most, the the most successful ones are the ones you think of the least. Like we just did a pharmaceutical company that just isn't testing well in focus group testing. Nobody could remember who they are. So I, I think that some industries... are, are, if they're sound centric, it's one thing, they're going to use it anyway. Sometimes they could present a little bit more of a challenge because they think that they've got it down.
2: So I guess, you know, they're all kind of equal to me. Have you thought at all about creating soundtracks for movies? Because it's it's so theatrical. There's so much drama in what you do. Yeah.
1: And movie soundtracks, um, to me, movie film scores is a real passion. Don't, don't go to the movies with me because we'll sit there and I'll tell you who did the score before the credits even come up because like I study them so much. The film guys are the original Sonic branding guys. They are the narrators. They can shape the experience. They make the tension. They drive the story. We are, we're storytellers. We're bringing these stories to life and making them the right emotional experience. For me, um, I, I haven't pursued film score because a film score to me, like a film takes so long to to make. And often at the end, there's like a shorter amount of time for the film score to get done. And I like things, I like the immediacy of television. I love working in television because I've been sitting there with somebody will run in and say, I need something for this. And he's going on the air with this. And, and just being able to go, okay, here, take it, turn in my chair around, and there it is on the feed. And it's pretty awesome.
2: Thank you, Audrey Arvini, for being on Design Matters today. You thank can, you. You can find out more about Audrey Arbini and Sonic Branding at audiobrain.com. This year, we're celebrating the 10th anniversary of Design Matters. And I'd like to thank you for listening. And remember, we can talk about making a difference, we can make a difference, or we can do both. I'm Debbie Nellman, and I look forward to talking with you again soon.
0: Design Matters with Debbie Millman is produced by Curtis Fox Productions. The show is published exclusively by designobserver.com. You can subscribe to this free podcast in the iTunes store.